What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In Season 2, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now, your host, award-winning architect-turned-entrepreneur, Atif Cotter, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Cotter. I'm the CEO of Redist, a real estate technology company, and I'm a licensed architect as well. We are recording from the historic home of world-renowned architect Michael Graves in Princeton, New Jersey. Check out this amazing space for yourself at the Michael Graves Architecture and Design YouTube channel. Now, let's build something. Today, our guest is architect Paul Lewis. Paul is a founding partner of the amazing design firm LTL Architects, and for his work is a winner of the prestigious Rome Prize, the Emerging Voices Award, and the Young Architects Award. Besides his work as a designer, he is a professor of architecture at his alma mater, Princeton University, and was recently named an associate dean. With the ample free time that he has, he also serves as the president of the Architectural League of New York. We will be talking about his Carnegie Mellon University Residence and Academic Hub project. More broadly, we will discuss the challenges of building a university building, particularly off-campus. Thank you so much for being here with us, Paul. My pleasure to be here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's get started. You uh, began your career doing retail interiors and, in fact, were recently inducted into the Interior Design Hall of Fame. Congratulations, Paul. Thanks. How does that interior design work relate to your architectural design work? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think the way we describe it is that for us, there isn't a radical difference, which is to say that for us, what's interests, what we're interested in is the design of space, mm-hmm. both interior, exterior. In fact, if we can do both, that's even better. And given the amount of time that one spends inside buildings, in some ways, they're more difficult particularly if there's a way to try to coordinate the interior with the structure of the building. So to do it as a synthetic project is is our approach. And like many young architects who aren't born with money, Mm -hmm. you have to find ways to develop the practice. And for us, we decided consciously to develop the work in a more public arena than residential work. Mm-hmm. So we didn't, uh, it's often common to develop a series of apartment renovations or house projects, mm-hmm. but we were more interested in projects that could have a more direct interface with the public, more engaged with the street. So actually it was, it was restaurants. We got the opportunity to do a restaurant and the next thing we know we had done, I think six restaurants mm-hmm. and they were, they had certain qualities to them. They were fast, right? They're, once the lease is signed, you, they want to 
they want to get it built as fast as possible. So it was quick turnaround. There was the ability to work on kind of materials and also the way in which those materials would interface with social organizations. So mm-hmm. the nature of the booth, the table, the interior, et cetera. They were ways for us to kind of do design build. So in a sense, it, they were experiments as much as anything. The turnover rate in restaurants is very high. So there's actually, in a weird way, a greater level of, of curiosity on the part of restaurants where because the, there's the willingness to, to take risks. And so they were a great vehicle for us and to develop a portfolio. And for us, there was never really a split between work on the interior and work with architectural uh, exterior buildings. They were all one and the same experiments with materials, forms, how social structures are influence and influence architecture. Those were all things that we were interested in and it affects the interior as well as the exterior. Mm-hmm. So architects as wide ranging as uh, Richard Meyer to me have had our parents' homes be the very first project that we did. So I applaud you for uh, taking an alternative path uh, than others. <laughs> yeah, that was never going to happen for us. <laughs> we also have an older sister who's an architect. And so mm-hmm. arguably she would had kids on the on. house if that mm-hmm. was even an option, So, which it wasn't. So, mm-hmm. But we did do a couple of apartments, but I think we we found a lot more pleasure in the um, doing the work in in the arenas of restaurants, and then we ended up doing a lot of arts organizations, architectural organizations. Did a lot, a fair number of exhibitions at Storefront, which mm-hmm. my business partner Mark is uh, Sir Maki is now the president of, mm-hmm. and as well as Van Allen and did work for Princeton Architectural Press. And so I think we had worked our way through a number of different kind of nonprofits in the architecture arena and uh, often employing a kind of design build practice to make some of the stuff that we were designing to be able to make it happen. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So speaking of Princeton, our listeners had the opportunity to learn about a lot about the university from Arthi Krishnamurthy from Deborah Burke Partners, who's working on two major uh, dormitories for the university. So you're a professor at the School of Architecture. And uh, why do you spend time teaching and do you feel it makes you a better designer? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no question about that. That's an easy one to answer because they mm-hmm. one of the more difficult things to do and to do it effectively over an entire afternoon is mm-hmm. to be involved in crits, to not just say, you know, I like it, I don't like it. That's easy. What's harder mm-hmm. is to actually bring something to the conversation, to see something in the work that might be overlooked, to start to speculate as to what, what how it might be advanced. And mm-hmm. so it's super challenging, but, you know, allows you to refine what you believe in. So I've been teaching now for 25 years thereabouts started very young and Mm -hmm. have always found it to be a stimulating arena it's very tiring i mean there's Mm -hmm. no question anybody who's finished the review or a desperate afternoon after about three or four hours you're just like i need another coffee or i need some way to relax or a drink (laughs) yeah there's that so but i thoroughly enjoy it and you know i think i probably Ironically enough, I may do more sketching in an afternoon giving desk grits than I do in the office, right? So mm-hmm. it's very, it's a very active process. I mean, that that goes without question that it it's a catalyst for our own design thinking. So all three of the partners in the practice are involved in teaching and mm-hmm. have been for many years with my brother, twin brother, David, just uh, recently this fall taking over 
taking on the deanship at Parsons mm -hmm. School of the Constructed Environments. So as you mentioned, you work with your twin brother, David, at LTL Architects. Your wife, Kim Yao, is also an architect and coincidentally was on the podcast earlier this season. How do you separate your work and your personal lives? Like, do you talk about anything other than architecture? Actually, yeah, we do. I mean, there's okay. so many other things to focus on. Our kids, our cat, you know, <laughs> we're like, well, we're, you know, daily survival. What are we having for dinner? So there's plenty of other things to fill our time. In fact, we probably don't talk enough about what we're doing in our respective offices, mm -hmm. in part because there's a kind of a need to focus on things that are not the office when you're not in the office. We don't spend a lot of time talking about work in the office, our respective offices, but we do, mm -hmm. particularly when we travel, spend a lot of time looking at architecture and seeing shows and going to exhibitions and visiting buildings, going to openings, et cetera. So that's really where it's in our mutual interest of architecture, culture in general, that we have a lot more overlap than in our respective competitive practices. I think that there's a particular DNA to architects. So for example, this year, I had the opportunity to work from home, but from mm -hmm. 12 different places because I uh, worked from home from everywhere from West Virginia to uh, Texas. And in each of these places, I was uh, typically staying at a historic hotel. So I, I was using this website called Historic Hotels of America. And mm. if someone looks at my Instagram feed, it's basically all buildings and food. Those are like the two things that yeah. mix it together. It but I, right. think, uh, I can definitely appreciate the, the way that you travel. It's a bit similar in a way to, to the way that I do as well. So the project that we are discussing today is in Pittsburgh in the Oakland neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Tell us more about the area and the peculiarities of the site itself. Yeah, it's a really interesting project. Mostly, well, not mostly, but because of the siting, this was not only the first residence hall that Carnegie Mellon University has built in, I want to get this right, I think it's about 20 years, certainly 15. So probably the first one in a generation, if you will. Mm -hmm. And their decision was to actually locate it not on campus, but in the neighborhood immediately surrounding campus. And it's on a major avenue within Pittsburgh, Fifth Avenue. And there's some fantastic buildings up and down Fifth Avenue, probably two buildings away is Rodolphe Shalom, a synagogue by uh, Hornbostel, a fantastic building. That's a historic building? Yeah, okay. historic building. Hornbostel is known as the architect who did, who, who is kind of responsible for building the key buildings and the, the initial organization of Carnegie Mellon University, mm -hmm. Carnegie Tech. You know, fantastic architect, and so it's quite challenging to be building down the street. So mm -hmm. that really put a, a different kind of pressure on the nature of the building. It wasn't on campus per se. It was really in the city fabric mm -hmm. adjacent to campus, but where a number of buildings, apartment buildings in particular, have been acquired by CMU. So it's, in a sense, it's hinging between the campus in terms of who's going to be in the building, certainly, but it's really part of the fabric of the neighborhood. So we had to be cognizant about that in terms of how we designed it. Its presence really needed to be a presence on the street, not a presence on a lawn, if you will, not on a campus. So, And that really put some interesting kind of pressures on the nature of the siting. You know, how do you locate the entry for a building 
that should have a public entry on fifth, but needs to pull the entry back a little bit so it's not so the students don't feel like they're on display to the main avenue. So how do you mm -hmm. balance both of those? So there's a number of different contradictions that come as a result of the peculiarities of the siting. Okay. The project was bid out using a RFQ or a request for qualifications process. What did this particularly entail and how did you structure your winning response? Yeah, it's a good question. I have to go back and think about what we had done. We had been put on a, a longer list and put forward our qualifications. And in that process, uh, we joined a partnership with PWWG Architects, who a local firm in uh, Pittsburgh, very good. We had really, I think, a good compatibility between the strengths that we brought to the table. And so that helped frame the uh, RFP submittal. I think there was a short list. These are, it was a pretty standard process in that sense, an interview. I remember specifically one of the things that we focused on is really understanding the typology of residence halls as a whole, what similar institutions were doing, what is mm -hmm. the trajectory of residence halls. This would have been our third residence hall of similar scale that we've done. So we were able to draw on that, our own history, but also wanted to take stock of where things were both outside of Carnegie Mellon, but also mm -hmm. closely analyzing every room they have. Like, what's mm -hmm. the average size room? What's the makeup of all of their hallways? Because one of the things we found is that residence halls exist in a, in a kind of an ecosystem. They're compared mm -hmm. to other residence halls on campus. They, they either are considered successful within that arena or they're considered the, the worst residence hall, right? So where do they fit? They're mostly compared internally. So we needed mm -hmm. to make sure that we were being clear about how this would then elevate all the residence halls by its addition but also recognizing what constituted a residence hall, what were the numbers in a hallway, what were the qualities. This was going to be a, an upper class residence hall, mostly juniors and seniors. Um, so how did that fit into the trajectory of residence halls that they may have lived in? So that helped bias how we presented the work. There was a lot of analysis, a fair amount of data, but making clear through drawings what was the current state, if you will, uh, of residence hall kind of infrastructure on campus mm -hmm. and what, how did that help frame what we would do? So less design and more analytical prelude to that work. And I think it was successful. Mm -hmm. It must've been, right? So, it must've been because yeah. you so, won. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> so as you mentioned, you've done projects for universities all across the United States from NYU to the University of Wyoming. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the lessons that you learned in those projects that informed your design process? For example, you had mentioned the idea of looking at and assessing all the rooms on that particular campus as part of that process. Were there other things that you uh, utilized as well? Yeah, I mean, certainly one of the things that we believed in, which came about as a result of, you know, at, at that point would have been about 10 or 15 years of working in residence hall it, it, with residence halls is that there were certain sizes of a hallway that just worked better. Like if you got to be too large, you, it became a, a more too anonymous and, you know, you started to lose the social kind of glue that constituted mm -hmm. your life on the hall. On the other hand, if it became too small, you felt isolated. There was no one around. What's going on? You always sensed that you were not in the right place. So mm -hmm. then also the other key issue 
we've come to realize that the design, the architectural design is really framing a series of nested relationships that go from the bed to the room, to the room, to the hall, from the hall to the lounge, et cetera. And so all of those sequences, those kind of ways in which you can develop a kind of sense of privacy, but also be connected to a collective, have to constantly be refined and looking for as much overlap within there as possible. So the argument that the the life should occur in the hallway is absolutely true. Hallways need to have a certain width. They shouldn't be just a transition to get to someplace else. They mm-hmm. need to foster the kind of casual conversations that take out take place outside the room. And the more they can then spill into a kind of lounge, so you don't have to commit to going to the lounge, but you just kind of end up there. But each space needs to, even though it needs to have a kind of an overlap and a linkage, they need to have a kind of clear identity. So how do you do both? How do you both set up the overlaps and the differences? And so that really started to inform a lot more how we would relate people to roommates, to hallmates, to the entire building and being conscious of those different nested uh, scales. So uh, tell us about this particular project by the numbers, like the square footage, the number of beds, et cetera. Yeah, the project is super close to being about 100,000 square feet. I think it's around 98,000 square mm-hmm. feet. It's a six-story residence hall, and it holds about 264 beds in different configurations, from singles to doubles to double suites to single suites. The ground floor contains a large series of lounges, kitchens, collective spaces, as well as the building in effect is two buildings. Mm-hmm. There is what's called the University Commons, which is a roughly 5,000, 6,000 square foot, really a meeting space, a, a space that engenders greater kind of social life among the entire community. So not just students, but staff, faculty, et cetera. It's a separate building, even though they're connected in the sense that one has to, they have separate entrance. They are not connected from the inside Yes, they share the courtyard, they share the street frontage, they're in the same structure, but they're consciously designed as two separate programs. So the ground floor is definitely a, a hub of activity with the, the lounge specifically for the residence hall occupants on one side and then the university neighborhood commons adjacent. Um, both are kind of positioned on Fifth Avenue. And so one of the challenges was designing a building that would have a sense of a synthetic link, but also a sense of difference between these two entries. And so the the geometry of the ground floor awnings and landscape are meant to both tie these together, but also make it clear that these are kind of two different uh, programs. So on that note, describe for our listeners what they would see as they walk through this project as completed from the outside, say perhaps the interiors up to where a student would go to their uh, rooms. Sure. I'm trying to not get into too much detail because there's a lot of thought given Mm -hmm. to the specifics of how the geometry of the building both formed a corner, but then also formed a setback off of that corner. So we were Mm -hmm. trying to hold the corner of fifth, but then also have what essentially is a C-shaped building and plan be entered from the middle. And that middle is actually not on 5th, but but midway back in the site from 5th mm-hmm. Avenue. So that stretches the end. The entry basically gets stretched. So that's re- really your first experience. You see the entrance from 5th, and most people, most of the students will be coming from that direction because campus 
it points in the direction of campus. But you would walk up this gently sloping ramp, bringing you into the entryway, and immediately you would turn and what would be open in front of you to your left is a large lounge, a series of different tables, meeting areas, a small kind of sunken area with large television, really meant as a kind of a collective building lounge. And then on each subsequent floor, these again are C-shaped in terms of their plan. And each of them has at the kind of joint of the C, if you will, mm-hmm. a double height study lounge. And the intent there is so that every floor has, is in a sense split into two wings, two L's, and they're joined then at the, the elevator. But as you would walk down the hall, you would encounter this central uh, study lounge. And each study lounge then either links up or it links down, being a double height. So mm-hmm. in effect, you can walk up the entire building just using the stairs within the study lounges as a means to connect through the building. Uh-huh. And that was important to us because we wanted to find a way that each hall would have an identity, but be connected. And we wanted to find a way that that connection wasn't just say between floor four and five, but now between five and six, five and four, four and three. And so that there's the ability to kind of mix throughout the entirety of the building. It also allowed us to distribute kitchenettes. So there's always a a kitchenette on every floor and there's always a main kind of lounge with a television on every floor and it oscillates from side to side. So there's a way of introducing section into a building Mm -hmm. type that often kind of resists vertical circulation and mostly because, you know, the, the circulation, the means of circulation are often constrained by fire code, right? So, mm-hmm. but we were by the distance, we were able to space them, we were able to make it work within the limits of the, the fire code regulations. So Alvar also in his design for a Baker house, so a dormitory at MIT used an external staircase for the, a very similar regard, which was connecting uh, studies and lounges from floor to floor to floor. And talk to, talk to us more about the material choices that you chose in and around uh, the staircase for the floors, the, the stairs themselves, as well as the surround in order to encourage this connection. Yeah. And again, these are really communicating stairs. Mm-hmm. And so they were designed so that they would be visible at the end of the hallway. So mm-hmm. that, And they were also always framed by double height glass so that each of those lounges has one wall as basically uh, glass and then the other will have punch windows and sometimes it staggers. And the point for that is that each, the view down every hallway ends in a window. So you don't get an occluded dark hallway. And certain views actually look at the staircase that then ascends up to the next level. And But we designed the risers as open, open risers so you can see through to the window and get a glimpse of what's going on. And most of the materials in there were, uh, we were working with bamboo for the stair treads as well as black iron. And the black iron defines a railing that gives mm-hmm. the sense that the that the stair is kind of suspended from the floor above as it extends the handrail of the double height space down to help structure the staircase. The other point to note about the lounges is that the the lounges on the on the outside of the sea, if you will, if the geometry mm-hmm. of the sea is like this, they're on the outside. On the inside, there's a very small kind of study nook kind of built-in booth uh, lined in felt and bamboo that allows you to just kind of sit there in the kind of moment of transition through the corridor. You're part of the lounge, but you're also pulled away a little bit. You're part of the hallway, but you're also pulled away. Again, this kind of nesting smaller scale spaces within the, the sequences of conventional forms in a residence hall 
lounge, corridor, room. So I'm going to pause here to let our listeners know that architect Arthi Krishnamurthy, a partner at Deborah Burke Partners, uh, will be on the show this season as well. She'll be talking about another spectacular dormitory project I mentioned earlier, uh, that one for Princeton University. Subscribe at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com so you don't miss any of the awesome guests that we have lined up for you this season. So let's take a bigger picture look at a building for university, but outside of the university's footprint. So town and gown is an expression that's used to describe the relationship between a university and the surrounding municipality. What are some common town and gown issues that you've seen on projects and what are good ways do you think that those issues can be mitigated or prevented? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think that uh, one of the probably if there is a defining characteristic is that it's impossible to predict. Like it's hard, there's hard to generalize, right? It becomes very specific to whatever friction point or particular kind of whether it's organizational or sight line or flow of traffic, et cetera. And it's very hard to kind of say that there's a kind of general strategy for this. I know that, mm-hmm. but Carnegie Mellon was incredibly good about maintaining contact with the neighborhood, letting them know what was going on. This is, it's a big building, but it's on a street that demands big buildings. I mean, the street mm-hmm. should have big buildings. It's a big building street, if you will. So, By big in this Oakland neighborhood, that what, what kind of stories are you talking about? Oh, we're, we're talking, ours was six stories. Most of the other buildings are six minimum, mm-hmm. generally speaking. But they're also, in terms of their size, they're substantial. I mean, it's not a series of small-scale residential buildings. Uh, there's a number of churches along the street, a number of very large apartment buildings, some dating back 100 years, if not more. It's a significant street where the architecture has a presence that is more at the collective scale in terms of it's it's not at the individual ownership. That being said, immediately back from the site, if you will, there are much smaller homes and apartments and townhouses. So there was definitely a kind of question of how do we kind of blend between the two, mm-hmm. but we felt that the scale, and we looked at different massing strategies that would bring down the scale, but in some ways, given everything around it, it made more sense to have the building hold its hold its own. And at six stories, it was by no, it's by no means the tallest building around. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually think that in comparison to what was there, which was a parking lot, and or it was a very small building and then was removed for a parking lot, it was uh, we inherited it as a parking lot site. I think it, it urbanistically is a, a strong addition to the street. And I should also mention that we work with Merritt Chase, the landscape architects, to develop a kind of rethinking of the sidewalk so that mm-hmm. there would be a kind of greater space for promenade, something more along the lines of what Fifth Avenue should have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And tree line, a, a space of safety away from the cars so that you can walk on the sidewalk and not feel like you're butted right up against the, uh, the relatively high amount of traffic. Going back to the early part of your question, the idiosyncrasy that I can point to specifically with Town & Gown had to do with the with sight lines and mm-hmm. what could be seen from, from where. I think a kind of question about both privacy uh, maintained for the students and also the other way around that the residents and one of the things about getting windows higher up is that you do get further sightline. Mm-hmm. 
So we we had worked on the south side of the building, a way of articulating the bricks to basically sculpt them into sun shading devices, basically mm-hmm. like corbeling the bricks. Whereas on the more residential side of the building, we actually developed the bricks as a kind of vertical mover, if you will, or basically a blind. So it, mm-hmm. it, the bricks actually extend out on the neighborhood side of the windows, just enough to provide a little bit more occlusion of the sight lines between the certain townhouses and interior to the residence hall rooms themselves. So Mm -hmm. kind of an interesting case where the south side of the building was kind of informed by solar angles. And then the uh, east side of the building was more informed by sight lines with town and gown relationships. I find that particularly entertaining because of this idea that uh, if you're living in a city, whether it's a dormitory or another apartment building, that's such a, a norm. But if that's an issue for someone, I'm sure that that's something that needs to be be addressed. And it and it worked for us because one of the important things about our projects to go back to this paradox of how do you hold the corner mm-hmm. with a C shape that has two corners and needs to be entered in the middle for the efficiency, the efficacy of the residence hall itself, right? So we have to have the elevator in the middle. How do you get people back there? So a lot of the work went into the subtlety of that corner. So not only do you get the two, the three double height windows that actually kind of interlock with projecting bricks, and that projecting brick is, is are then detailed as recessed bricks that kind of fade back as mm-hmm. they uh, uh, reach the corner. But we also wanted the shading devices to echo towards the corner. So the shading devices on the south side actually corbel up on the side of the window away from you as you're walking up to the corner and the opposite Mm -hmm. on the side of the building. So in a sense, both sets of eyebrows, if you will, kind of look to the corner. So there's that sense, and then this is super subtle, right? It may may not even be noticed, but we thought thought it was really important that there was a a sculpting to the geometry of the details of how the brickwork that was done that reiterated the overall massing. So there was an affinity between part and whole at the largest and the smallest scale. Mm-hmm. Could you explain for our listeners that may not know, what is a corbel? Corbel is the ability to Legos corbel really well, which is you can achieve a kind of a cantilever mm-hmm. by offsetting one brick on top of the next. So it slowly projects out, mm-hmm. but the line of force then works its way on an angle. So in effect, you get an oblique, but it's the ability for each one to stack up just slightly out from the other. Uh, you then have to tie it back at the top. Mm-hmm. But and that's what we do with our precast headers. But it allows you to use bricks in a way that bricks work, if that makes any sense. So, so using a, a brick technique mm-hmm. to produce effects rather than sticking a window shade on top of a building, could we actually produce the shading effects from the very material used to make the building's facade? So mm, we okay. try to avoid clipping and adding more things to systems if we can do if we can avoid it. So the idea being that it's those joints being the places where a facade will typically fail, right? More that just I'd rather find a way to have multivalent performance, right? So mm, one thing it. does multiple things. So rather than 
you know, oh, we need shading. Okay, clip on the aluminum mm. shades. Okay, now we need this. Oh, clip this on. So you end up with this multi, I mean, in fact, some of my least favorite buildings are buildings that are an all glass facade. And then they realize, wait, we got too much glass. So they have to clip on a whole bunch of louvers <laughs> to shade the glass. And wait, now the louvers are going to get dirty. So now they're going to have to be mm-hmm. things that keep dirt from falling on the louvers. And, that, and the pigeons are going to be on yeah, the louvers. Yeah, and so they need the spikes yeah. on top of, you know, you know, it's just these, like, rather than figuring out a kind of synthetic way to do multiple things with, you know, one detail or one material, and it's this approach that says, oh, we can just keep adding. And then that accumulation mm-hmm. of stuff then somehow becomes an aesthetic of expressing the performance of the building. It's like, well, you just have spent a lot of money <laughs> to express something that could have been done in a much more subtle way. So, I think you're also describing American consumption and crass consumerism as well, this idea yeah. of accumulation of stuff. There may be that too, yeah. So there's a, yeah, there's definitely there's a way in which we tend to, Kitchen appliances are like that. Mm-hmm. You really need the level of specificity for every single one when it really is just about accumulating more things. So and mm-hmm. they don't do it any better. So I think especially even though I enjoy cooking, I probably use the same steak knife to do pretty much everything. So go. I am a heathen, but it gets the job there done. You go. So yeah, yeah. There you go. So <laughs> we talked about the size and the shape of the building, which is massing. And that can have big impacts, uh, not only on views, which you mentioned, but also on light and shadow. Sure. Um, talk to us about ha- how you approach those issues in the design of this project. Yeah. Well, one of the, I think one of the things that we were, we spent a lot of time modeling and working with ME engineers on is trying to figure out a way that we could get as much light into the courtyard and not have the courtyard be too big, but also not have it be too dark. Mm-hmm. We so we shifted to where the exterior kind of public face of the building is done in this recycled glass uh, bricks, this pozzolan gray bricks. It's one of the few ways to get gray, true gray, not brown. True gray bricks is to in the United States without paying for the expensive Peterson bricks and other very expensive imported bricks, which are beautiful, but that wasn't going to be in our budget. Mm-hmm. As a contrast to those bricks, the courtyard is is zinc. And we like zinc because it gave a kind of earth quality, but also there was a lightness to it and it reflected light in a, in a way. And actually the light levels in the courtyard we're very pleased with. So that was one of our concerns is that the courtyard, given the six-story building, given the site constraints, we wanted to make sure the courtyard felt like it wasn't, it was the right size, but also mm-hmm. brought enough light in. And I think we're very pleased with the result. And the idea being that you wouldn't want that courtyard to be dark or shadowy because no one would come right right and we also you know we have kind of green roofs on some of the lower the commons extend out into the courtyard and so Mm -hmm. those portions wherever there's an extension there's a green roof on it so we wanted to make sure there was enough light feeding to those those plants as well so what would you say is the approach that you took to designing the ground floor. So you mentioned the idea of connecting the sidewalk and the idea of the shape. And uh, in terms of materiality, it's dominantly glass on that ground floor. The uses on the that first floor, are they, for example, lounges or study spaces? What's happening down there? Yeah. So in the residence hall, the ground floor, particularly on the street, is more active group activity. So there's a kind of sunken area, maybe 
three or four steps down that's configured around the large scale television. It's kind of conversation pit. It's a kind of gathering place for the as many residents as want to gather. That extends to an upper lounge, which both works for smaller seating groups, but those can also be all gathered around if, say, there's a somebody giving a talk or or there's a particular sporting event where they want to really get a lot of people around it. Mm-hmm or television, whatever might be the kind of focal point. There are a series of also large-scale built-in kind of bamboo tables that we design, and that's to allow people to kind of gather in, you know, say one or two people, but if a friend shows up, another Mm -hmm. person can sit there trying to avoid the, you know, four-seater, six-seater, eight-seater, which feels empty when you only have two people on it, and then it can't hold her 15. So we wanted to have Mm -hmm. a table shape that, you feel comfortable if you're one or two people, but if 14 people show up, great. Everyone mm-hmm. can fit. So trying to work with different geometries. So that that's really the life of the, of the ground floor that's visible from the sidewalk. And that's in the residence hall. The neighborhood commons has very specific programmatic rooms that align with Fifth Avenue. So there's a dance room with a sprung floor. There's a music room, and then there's a kind of multi-purpose, larger scale room that can either be used for, say, a kind of demonstration, arts and crafts, mm-hmm. or a lecture. It's, it's set up for a variety of configurations. Those are all visible, particularly the dance and the music room where have a lot of visibility to the street. And that was intentional. We wanted their, the activity of the neighborhood commons to be visible where possible, whereas the more kind of smaller scale gathering in the neighborhood commons is more towards the courtyard. There's a hearth mm-hmm. with a fireplace and that's set up as the kind of key zone and that's immediately adjacent to the courtyard. So making connections between the courtyard and the interior of the commons in the less public side of the building, if you will. And then between virtual learning and quarantine, there have been many issues for university students during the pandemic in terms of the residential context. So could you share with us some of the conversations that are happening at your firm about how dormitories will look in the future? It's a good question. And I would argue that the current pandemic, which we all hope will at some point end, (laughs) isn't a great model to use as the basis for envisioning future social structures, meaning Mm -hmm. it tends to require the very things that we don't encourage, right? You know, decreasing chance encounters, Mm -hmm. putting kind of pressure on large groups to dissipate, all the things that are not what you want. The the architecture should foster greater exchange, greater connection, et cetera. So it's a good question. And certainly we discussed it with CMU. And I think our argument was that the way the building set up it enables smaller groups to gather. It enables mm-hmm. you to have control over your room. Coming and going has a certain, again, kind of control and knowledge, if you will. Mm-hmm. I would say that the way the more jubilant moments within a residence hall are maybe calmed a little bit now for necessity. And I'm hoping that that's not something we, we start designing for. I'd rather design for the more euphoric, celebratory social reasons why we all exist in a society. (laughs) Exactly. It certainly sounds like a a more fun solution. 
And I'm not sure if you happen to know this, but Pittsburgh was uh, rated by BuzzFeed as the number one place that Brooklyn hipsters are moving to because <laughs> of climate crisis. So there may be an entire influx of new students, new people that will all be able to enjoy this wonderful streetscape and building that, that you've designed. So uh, thank you so much for joining us today on the American Building Podcast, Paul. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So listeners, if you want to hear the behind the scenes stories of how iconic buildings in our country were designed and built, subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or wherever you like to listen. We all know real estate is a tough industry to make it. So how can professionals stand out and make a name for themselves in today's world? Hear from me, the teams at Michael Graves and Redist, and many of our spectacular guests, just like Paul, on what we did to make it where we are. Grab our exclusive guide, Seven Tips on How to Stand Out in Your Field, at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. Finally, we live in the richest country in the history of humankind. We must reach out beyond the boundaries that we see and the boundaries that we create in order to help build homes and communities. Today, Paul and I have made donations to the Architectural League of New York, which engages the public with good design. I encourage you, our listeners, to support their worthwhile work as well. My name is Atif Kader, and this has been American Building by Michael Graves. <laughs>